Welcome to the podcast. This is called Witch Busting, and you may well have heard of Ghost Busting, in which somebody goes to a property and tries to assess whether it's haunted and tries to assess whether ghosts actually exist or not. Now, with Witch Busting, we're not really going to be doing that. We're not going to be looking at whether witches actually exist because we know they exist. How do we know, Trevor? Well, we know they exist because we're a pair of them. We're modern witches, and we're not the sort of witch who is going to go dancing around the forest naked, as you might see in the newspapers. But we do practice as witches. Yes, we do. And we are very lucky as witches in modern Britain, because we can practice. We can do what we do without really attracting that much attention, uh, even these days, or that much criticism. We ran a witchcraft shop in Glastonbury for many years. We're not doing that now. Did we get persecuted? Did we get things thrown through the window? No, we didn't. We were very fortunate. Not often, anyway. No, not often, anyway. The same has not been true, unfortunately, throughout an awful lot of British history. And I think when you mention witches to people, a number of preconceptions come to their minds. They think of somebody in a pointy hat. They see somebody with a cat at their heels. OK, we've got the cat. We've got several cats, actually. But uh, we don't have um, familiars. We don't wear pointy hats. But one of the things that people do tend to concentrate on, possibly because they've heard a little bit about it, is the witch trials, the witch hunts. Would you say that was correct, Trevor? I think it's absolutely correct. The idea that the witch finder general would uh, actually come to a village and accuse people, uh, usually women, it has to be said, of witchcraft practices or unnatural practices And we're going to be looking today, I think, mostly at uh, the witchcraft trials in Lancashire, uh, Pendle. Yes, we are. Yeah, we're going to be taking a look at Pendle, but we're also going to be going into the background of the witch trials. Because it wasn't just um, one isolated incident. This went on over hundreds of years. But I do think, and this is where the witch busting comes in, there are a lot of misconceptions about that process and what it actually meant and what it meant for people as well. So the witch-busting part of this uh, is our contention in this podcast that a lot of the people targeted during the witch trials of the later medieval Elizabethan and Civil War periods were actually unlikely to have been actual witches. So there's a difference in British history between witches and what we know as cunning folk. Cunning folk are the midwives, the healers, the herbalists, the people you'd go to if you had a problem. And throughout history, they've had all sorts of roles. They've helped you with your love affairs. They've helped you with your health. They've helped you to find missing objects. This was actually a really big role for a lot of um, local magicians in history. You know, I've lost this precious brooch that my auntie gave me. Where is it? Where has it gone? 
you'd go to your cunning person, a male or female, and they'd do a spell or they'd ask a demon perhaps or they'd ask a spirit and they'd find your missing object for you. Now, when we talk about witches, what are we actually saying? There's a big difference between a cunning person in British law and a witch. And over the course of the centuries, the belief system essentially goes like this. Witches are evil. They practice black magic. They consort with the devil. Cunning folk are good. They practice benevolent magic, mainly protecting people from black magic and helping those who have been cursed by witches. People would know about them mainly by word of mouth. So if you think um, that old Biddy Two-Shoes down the road, having had a massive row with you about your field boundary, has now cursed your cow in revenge and your cow dies, and you're stomping up and down your little hovel thinking, I really want to get back at that old woman, what do you do? You go to the cunning person, and the cunning person will do a divination or some such and say, Oh yeah, she did. She did, you know. She cursed your cow. Your cow's now dead. What do you want me to do about it? And you'd say, well, I want revenge. I want you to do something about it. And the cunning person isn't necessarily going to retaliate because that means that they too would be practising black magic and getting on the wrong side of the law. But under some legal systems throughout um, the centuries during which the witch trials were extant, you could actually go to the church and say, I've got proof that Biddy Two-Shoes has cursed my cow. She's evil. We've got to do something about her. Sometimes the church wouldn't act. Sometimes it would. And the cases where it would are the cases where we've got a serious problem. Or rather, Biddy Two-Shoes has got a serious problem. So were there a lot of witches in Britain? Were they constantly cursing people? What were they actually doing? Were they really as common as all that? And There's a big problem with some of this because in the early days of the church, the church actually denied that witchcraft and witches were real. That obviously gives you a bit of a problem legally. If something's not real, you can't prosecute it. So it all really starts to gain traction when the church changes its mind. The idea that a pact with the devil could be made had become increasingly popular, i.e. it's not really an individual who is the source of the black magic, but Satan working through the individual. New texts coming into the country in translation from the Islamic world, such as the Arabic grimoire Gayat al-Hakim, also known as the Picatrix, were giving cause for concern among clerics. Things of which heretics had been accused are now becoming things of which witches were accused. Eating babies, orgies, cannibalism, demon worship. Horrible stuff, mainly unprovable or downright untrue, but also useful if you wanted to get rid of someone like a neighbour whom you didn't like. We're talking about small, often isolated communities and human nature being what it is, people fall out with each other all the time. Think of Facebook. It's a good thing they didn't have social media in the Middle Ages. Think of the rows that start on Facebook and then translate that to a little village. Maybe you didn't get on with your neighbour. Maybe your neighbour was unwell, might have had mental health issues. You might not understand their behaviour. Maybe you just find them creepy. And maybe you just don't like them. Or maybe you want their land. So how can you get rid of them? Simple. Accuse them of witchcraft. All of this reached its peak from about 1450 to the mid-1600s. 
Britain got off actually quite lightly compared to the continent. There were absolutely thousands of trials across Europe during this time. And when we talk about people being burned as witches, that didn't really apply to Britain. There were quite a lot of deaths, which we'll come to soon. But people were mainly hanged. A few people, I think, did go to the stake, but um, it wasn't as bad as it was in Europe. But why did it actually happen in Britain? And firstly, this is because the nature of legal trials changed from accusatory to inquisitional. Previously, if you thought somebody had put a curse on you, you had to come up with proof. That wasn't easy, and you ran the risk of being punished yourself. So when I said that somebody might go to the local cunning person and say, oh, Biddy Tushes has put a curse on me, and he would say, oh, she definitely has, that does come with a little bit of hazard, because what if the church then turns on the cunning person? It probably would count as evidence in those days, but the cunning person might get into trouble as well. People would be a little bit wary of that happening. But when the legal system changed, you could accuse someone and a judge could decide if they were guilty or not. And also communication was changing. Paper was becoming more common rather than expensive parchment. It became easier to disseminate magical information. People can read if they can read. A lot of people could. And it becomes easier to disseminate magical stuff, but it also becomes easier for the authorities to seize it and track down the author. In addition to this, uh, there are a lot of political issues. And accusations of witchcraft were made against Henry VII's enemies, um, for instance. Now, they were gaining increased power in Wales at the time. And as I've said, it's really convenient to convince the authorities that somebody's a witch if that person is unpopular and if they might be seen as politically dodgy. And there were also religious issues. By the end of the 13th century, the church was becoming increasingly concerned with Christian heresies. So how many witches actually were there, Liz? The answer to how many actual witches there are, we don't know. It's not fixed. We really don't know. But it's likely, I think historians agree, that there really weren't large numbers of people forming covens, cursing and blighting all and sundry, and holding sabbats in the woods. There weren't an enormous number of persecutions in England, and the number of witches who were actually hanged in Wales uh, numbered five. Only five people. OK, five people too many, but that's not a lot of people compared to some of the people who were killed on the continent. Scotland was a somewhat different story. Scotland is really the home of witch persecution. So, OK, so if the nice cunning person in the next village who gives you charms against black magic and they make you healing herbal concoctions, and they help you with your animals. Those people aren't being persecuted, in fact. So who was? So in Britain, there's a quote, competent middle-aged middle-class women were more often picked on, usually because they had a reputation for a hot temper and a sharp tongue. Want your next door neighbour's land? Have a row with them about money. Call in the witch finder general and let him sort it out. And that actually happened a lot. Other targets included the mentally ill, those members of the criminal classes who extorted money by means of magical Im intimidation, give me a penny or I'll put a spell on you, and people who genuinely believed in magic and who did undertake cursing. A visit down to the Boscastle Museum will show us that earlier magical practitioners did not have the same squeamishness about cursing people as, for example, modern-day Wiccans do today. Wiccans really won't do it. And without question, some people did practice a form of what's commonly called black magic in those days. 
also affected were heretics and people who undertook possible drug use, henbane or belladonna. So what was the case study you mentioned, Liz? The one that I've chosen is a very famous case, that of the Pendle Witches in Lancashire in 1612. Now, Trevor, you and I went up to Pendle, didn't we? We did indeed, and we had a a marvellous weekend with uh, a modern-day witch hunter uh, who had a top hat and tails, and a lot of fun, but also a lot of very, very dark purpose to it. We were taken to Lancaster Jail and shown the witch's hole, which was really quite scary. It was a, a, a well literally just a a dark well where they were actually kept. Yeah, absolutely. And the thought of somebody being stuffed into that was absolutely terrifying. I mean, these days, without question, that would be a massive human rights violation. But it was alarming. But the trial of about 20 people, and 16 of those were women, uh, took place at the Lancaster Assizes in the 1600s. And a lot of the accused had been arrested in and around Pendle, and they'd been made to walk all the way to Lancaster across the Vale of Boland. Do you remember that bus trip we took across I, the Vale? I do. That was really quite revealing. And although we weren't taken on the direct walking route, just standing and looking and seeing what the old path must have mm. been like was really evocative. And it was quite a long way, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I think they were marched about 12 miles. Yeah, and that took quite a long time. I don't know what time of year it was, actually. Can you remember? No, not at all. I I don't remember the dates. Yeah, but, I mean, knowing that you were going to go into Lancaster Prison and that was at the end of this this journey would have been pretty horrendous, actually. And eight of those people came from Salmsbury, which is associated with the very handsome hall that still stands there. And you'll recall going round that beautiful house. That was a lovely experience as well. It's a half-timbered place, for, for those of you who don't know it, but it really is impressive. Yeah, it's absolutely lovely. It's one of those black-and-white Elizabethan buildings, and we were very, very impressed. And the thought that um, somebody who owned that place, who would have been, I think, quite a wealthy family, could have been falsely accused and taken yeah you know and sent to lancaster again that would have been one of the wealthiest families and for them to be accused it had to be taken seriously uh, and then for them to be removed from that beautiful house yeah just horrifying must have been so frightening so 11 people out of the 20 in the end went to trial there were nine women and two men and of those people Ten were found guilty and hanged, and one of them was released. Why is the trial significant? Well, it's meaningful because it represents 2% of the total number of people hanged for witchcraft throughout the entire period of the English witch trials. The total number of people executed was actually less than 500. That's still 500 people too many, but it's not an enormous quantity. The witches themselves were mainly from two families, each headed by a matriarch. One was the family of Elizabeth Southerns, a.k.a. Demdike, her daughter, Elizabeth Device, plus her grandchildren, James and Alison Device, Anne Whittle, a.k.a. Chattox, and her daughter, Redfern, represented the other family. This is where it gets a bit Jeremy Kyle. 
The situation is complicated by the fact that the Demdikes and the Chattucks families seem to have been in competition. They were rivals who accused one another of all sorts and who seem to have been a mini-criminal gang competing for the market of healing, extortion and begging. Pendle's exceptionally bleak. I think when we went up there, it was uh, a lovely summer's day, but you could look out over some of this land and think, wow, in winter, this must be absolutely barren. Especially in those days, you don't have electricity, you don't have modern transport. You're forced to scrape a living out of this very, very harsh landscape. People could possibly scrape out that living from things like sheep farming. But it's very hard to survive economically in many ways at this level of society. And it's possibly that degree of poverty that drove people, um, essentially, into a life of petty crime. And Pendle was apparently, somebody said, fabled for its theft, violence and sexual laxity, where the church was honoured without much understanding of its doctrines by the common people. Salmsbury and its occupants would have been quite wealthy. An awful lot of people, including the Demdike family, really wouldn't have been. And the Abbey at Welly, which is nearby, is the major religious institution in the district. After the Reformation, that abbey was dissolved. And people, this is quite important, so remember this bit, people still held to their Roman Catholic beliefs. When Elizabeth came to the throne, many of them continued to celebrate the Catholic Mass in secret. And now a word from the show's online sponsors, the Witchcraft Shop in Glastonbury where you can find all your witchy, pagan and alternative health supplies, including incenses, oils, herbs, candles, wands and altar items. Or maybe even take a tarot reading. The Witchcraft Shop also offers courses in practical magic and conducts hand-fasting and pagan ceremonies for celebrants. Many other products and services are also available on request. Visit www witchcraftshop.co.uk and tell them which busting sent you. So just to take a look at some of the backstory of all this, in 1562, Queen Elizabeth passed a law in the form of an act against conjurations, enchantments and witchcrafts. This called for the death penalty, but only in cases where harm had actually been caused. Lesser offences were punishable by a term of imprisonment. The act provided that anyone who should use, practice or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed, was guilty of a felony, and that was without benefit of clergy, and they were to be put to death. This set the tone for the next few decades of the witch trials, which culminated in King James' legislation, the Witchcraft Act of 1604. This also sought the death penalty in cases where harm resulting from witchcraft could be shown. The authorities in Pendle, perhaps seeking favour from the king in the early 1600s, were keen to expose recusants, i.e. anyone who wouldn't attend the English church, and it was during this period that a peddler came forward to announce that he had himself been injured by witchcraft. Who was this peddler guy then? What, what actually happened? And what seems to have happened was that Alison Demdike had met the peddler, whose name was John Law, and she'd asked to buy some metal pins. You think of this as a really small thing, but actually pins were quite valuable in those days. They were used for all sorts of things, not just holding your clothes together. And um, the peddler, however, was not very keen to supply them. Now, this is a bit weird because if you go up to somebody who's selling stuff and say, oh, I'd like to buy some pins, please, and he says, 
Oh, no, I don't really think so. What on earth is going on there? Now, possibly he suspected that she was using them for nefarious occult purposes, like sticking in dolls. Now, Mother was known to have been a witch for 50 years. And it might just be that he couldn't be bothered to undo the whole pack that he was carrying for such a little item. Or maybe Alison wanted him to give her the pins and she wouldn't pay. We just don't know. Anyway, she took her refusal badly. She got a bit miffed. And a few minutes after she, I think, gave him a piece of her mind, John Law had what sounds exactly like a stroke. He may not have thought he'd been cursed, uh, but Alison, apparently she did. As she visited him a little time later, she confessed and she asked for his forgiveness. So I think it's important for us to realise that the deaths of which the Pendle witches were subsequently accused were not a sudden spate of mysterious slayings. They'd mostly taken place years before the incident with Law. But after Law's family mentioned the episode to the local JP, Roger Noel, the latter brought the Demdike family in for questioning, and it was at this point that things began to escalate. Alison claimed that she'd sold her soul to the devil, and her brother told the magistrate that she'd bewitched a local child. Alison also seems to have told Noel about the Chattox family, who were in the Demdike's bad books as a result of a recent burglary. When Chattox herself was brought in, she said that she had indeed sold her own soul to a thing like a Christian man in exchange for power and revenge. And she also confessed to four murders. Both old Mrs Demdike and Mrs Chattox were in their 80s and they were blind. And today, these dotty, poverty-stricken, poor old ladies, even if they were a bit malevolent and didn't like each other, they wouldn't get anywhere near a courthouse. This would be a matter for social services, if at all. The local doctor would get involved, your social worker would get involved. Somebody would sit down with a cup of tea and talk through their problems. But this was not the case in the 1600s. And they'd pretty much all confessed. So what's the JP supposed to do? Noel sent everybody to Lancaster for trial. He kind of got rid of them. He got them off his plate. However, then he got word of a meeting in Malkin Tower, which is the home of the Demdikes, organised by Elizabeth Demdike on Good Friday. Was this a witch's coven gathering? Probably not, actually. It might have been an illicit Catholic mass. But as a result, eight more people were accused of witchcraft and the Pendle episode was starting to snowball. But these Pendle witches were actually quite a diverse group of people. Also accused were Jane Bullcock and her son John Bullcock, Catherine Hewitt, Alice Gray, Jeanette Preston and the unfortunately named Alice Nutter, who might have turned up in a book of Terry Pratchett's at one point as well as the witches from Salmsbury, who were Jane Southworth and Jeanette and Ellen Byerley, who were accused by a 14-year-old girl, Grace Sauerbutz, of child murder and cannibalism. Their trial collapsed when Grace was discovered to have been manipulated by a Catholic priest. The women from Salisbury were eventually acquitted, but the whole trial was little to do with witchcraft and a whole lot to do with the Catholic-Protestant divide. Alice Nutter was a wealthy widow and a landowner, and it's possible that she was a recusant, but it's also possible that Noel wanted her property for himself. 
They'd already had a bit of a run-in, I think, over a field. Two of her family had already been executed for being Catholic, and if she had attended a mass, it's possible that she would not want to implicate anyone else in amongst her relatives. Whatever the case, uh, Nutter herself was eventually hanged. Now, Nutter protested that she was innocent, and so did the Salmsbury witches. So we've got here a combination of people who actually believed themselves to be involved in witchcraft, like the Demdikes, and who, for whatever reason, confessed, and a bunch of people who seem to have had a very tangential relationship, if any, with actual magical practice. So although they're all known as the Pendle witches, we can't really lump them all into one single category. Janet Device, who was nine years old at the time, gave evidence against their entire family. Again, we can't be sure why. Was this malice? Uh, was it revenge? Something a mum had done? Was it manipulation of the kind found in the sort of satanic panic cases of reconstructed memory in the late 20th century? Was it bribery? Or was it simple terror of the authorities? She said what she wanted to say, or they wanted her to say, because she was scared. And we can't say why a little girl would implicate the whole of her family on something that was known to be a capital offence. But whatever her reasons, her mother, her brother and her sister were put to death on her word. Now, years later, rather ironically, either Janet herself or a woman of the same name was prosecuted for witchcraft and also imprisoned for it. So I guess karma kicked in if that was the same person. But whatever the case, the Pendle trials are a pretty disgraceful episode and not really befitting the legal history of the country. So thank you very much for listening to Witch Busting. I'm Liz Williams. And I'm Trevor Jones, occasionally. In the still of the night, if you're quiet you might just hear a word. The from the trees is your name on the breeze.
Witch Busting was brought to you by Trevor Jones and Dr. Liz Williams. The producer was Ross Hemsworth for Remote Highway Media.